a year of quarantine, I've finally started doing jigsaw puzzles. Oh, it only took you a year. Yes. Well, a few weeks ago, Rosie had dropped off like a, quote, magic puzzle, which I was very curious about and she wouldn't tell me what the twist was. And how many pieces is that? It's probably a thousand or more, I would assume. Okay. Is it a difficult puzzle? Well, here's the thing. It has several edges. Like, I think it's broken into at least two pieces. There's multiple edges that are in the middle. Now that I'm thinking about it, it has to be probably at least four pieces. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I thought it was going to be harder because it's got like a Where's Waldo quality to it. Okay. But the tiny little scenes are specific enough that I'm actually not having a hard time locating stuff. Oh, that sounds fun though. Yes. I feel like you guys puzzled, but much earlier in this phase. Yeah, we did one puzzle. Well, I did one puzzle. I really like puzzles, but Alex is not keen about puzzles. Oh, I puzzles. just remembered. She does not enjoy this as much as we yeah, do. Yeah, she finds it tedious. That's very understandable. I always do it while watching something. I feel like you and I used to do them a lot like years ago and we had nothing better to do with our lives. I like them listening to an audiobook. I find them very relaxing, but clearly she doesn't. We actually do have two nice puzzles that I bought sometime during quarantine from like the New Yorker or something that are that I haven't done. So maybe I'll break those out at some point. But I mean, I feel like that's a quarantine hobby, like, you know, sourdough bread that everyone got into like really early on. So I don't know, a year later, you're finally at the trend. It's true. Maybe two months from now, I'll start baking bread. Maybe. Although by then, one might actually be able to share bread with other people. That would be nice since I can't imagine I will eat as much bread as I would make. No, you don't like bread that much. I feel like I'm picky about the quality of bread. I don't want to eat just random bread, but maybe I'm changing. Maybe you are. We all change. We grow as people. Pandemic (laughs) has really influenced us. Yes. I was talking to another friend recently about how in the past year we've all become unrecognizable to ourselves. Welcome to Romcomathon. I'm Alex. And I'm Kat. And this month we are talking about Ever After, which is not really a rom-com, but we just wanted to watch it. Yes. Perhaps we needed a palate cleanser after the horrible movie we watched last week or last month. Yeah, so here we are with the classic. I was happy to discover that it was actually streaming on Disney, so I didn't have to pay for it. Well, I mean, like, I own it on DVD, but I didn't have to, like, dig out the DVD. Same. I was, like, 80% sure that I have the DVD, but... Yep. So I actually, I haven't rewatched this movie in a really long time, so it was kind of fun rewatching it, but there was a period in my life where I watched this movie a lot. So like, you know, I was like, oh, this is all coming back to me. Really weird. Like how there's just like Leonardo (laughs) da Vinci just like shows up and plays like a fairly prominent role in this film. Like, it's very strange. We have a lot to talk about in terms of like the fantasy history of this. I got to be honest. I know I'm usually the one who does research, but I was like, I got to look this up. I should look this up. There were too many things. I did not look them all up. But I had the exact same experience where I think it's been maybe a good decade, but I used to possibly watch this movie just over and over and over in the way I do. And I didn't remember this until we got to the end and I sort of started automatically singing along to the credit song and Matt just started laughing at me. I was like, yeah, apparently I used to know like every word of this movie, which makes sense because I had a pretty solid Drew Barrymore phase. That's true. I don't know if this is because of, I mean, I must have watched this because of that, but I don't know why I watched it over and over. I'm guessing it was circa like late high school, early college. Well, 
I find it like a surprisingly like comforting film given that like a lot of like not great things happen in the movie like to her but I I find it like pretty benign so maybe that was it but yeah you did have a very you had a very prominent Drew Barrymore phase I was actually thinking about that because Alex watched maybe like half or like came in and out um and she basically she said to me at one point she goes you know, Drew Barrymore, like, if I just passed her on the street, if she, like, wasn't famous, like, I'm not sure I would, like, really take note of her. Like, she's not that pretty. She's not, like, that ugly. Like, you know, she's just, like, her face is just, like, whatever. And I was, like, she does have a weird face. But then I was just remembering your, you know, your... My hair theory? Yes, your hair theory, but also your um, your intense love of Drew Barrymore for, like, a few months. Yes, it's interesting watching this because, like, it's not her most beautiful movie, but she's just very appealing. I think that's the thing. Yeah, we were talking about how cute she is um, and how weird she is. I don't know if you know anything about her current talk show, but apparently it's very strange. No, I totally forgot that happened. I think she had the other Charlie's Angels on and I thought that was cute, but I haven't. I I hear it's a little unhinged. (laughs) Anyway, so why don't you summarize the film? Oh, sure. Well, basically, it's Cinderella, so there's not that much to tell, but Drew Barrymore is the daughter of a merchant or farmer? He's not a farmer. He's some kind of title gentry. He owns a farm, though, and I don't think he's of noble blood. So this was unclear to me, right, during the film, because this was, like, a big plot point that somehow, like, hinged on, like, the fact that Drew Barrymore herself was not noble, but her stepmother was a baroness and her mother was a countess. I don't think her mom was a countess. I think she adds Comtesse to her mom's name because at one point Angelica is saying, like, how dare you turn your mom into a countess or something like that. Oh, maybe, maybe. Okay, okay. I, but I thought that her dad was like maybe something, but I guess like. But honestly, I'm not sure what's going on with Angelica Houston either. Like, we got to talk about everyone's possible noble or not noble blood. Okay, it's true. Okay, so her dad, I, th- I think her dad was a merchant though, because he kept, he said like, I have to go. Like, you know, it just like seemed like. Yeah, he's like, constantly traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed like he was like doing something merchanty and yeah. Anyway, so they live on and own a farm and they have servants and life is very like bucolic and fun. And he travels a lot for work. And every time he travels, he brings back a book for her, including Utopia, which indeed is a bit mature for an eight-year-old. But they're very, very close. And one day when she's about eight, he marries a baroness, Angelica Houston, and brings her and her two daughters back with him. These daughters grew up to be Melanie Linsky, who's wonderful, and Megan Dodds, who's not... I don't know about the actors. I'm talking about the characters. Unfortunately, Drew Barrymore's father dies like immediately after this. I think it's been like a day. A fortnight later. Oh, okay. So he's about to go on a trip and has a heart attack. And in his dying moments, he tells baby Drew Barrymore that he loves her and kind of ignores Angelica Houston, which honestly is understandable under the circumstances, but seems to be part of what fuels her to kind of hate Drew Barrymore subsequently. It's it's lunacy, but yes, go on. As well as the life that she's trapped in on this farm, I guess, where she didn't want to move. Though she does seem to actually love Drew Barrymore's father. But anyway, so cut to however many years later... I believe it's like 10. There might have been a Chiron that I don't remember. But like given that it's 16th century France, let's assume Drew Barrymore is a teenager. Yeah. Um, She's basically been reduced to servant level while Angelica Houston runs the farm into the ground. Big bummer. 
Meanwhile, DeGray Scott is the prince, the disaffected prince, who lives in what I assume is Paris, but Paris seems to be both very far away and very close, depending on how they talk about it. Oh, I don't think I've ever given a single thought as to, like, where that castle was located. But you're correct. They should be in the capital of France, given that he is the crown prince of France. But, like, where are they? Yes. So it seems as though Drew Barrymore lives in the country, but the country is somehow quite close to Paris. And also, like, sometimes they talk about Paris in this way of, like, ah, Paris in spring, how nice, or whatever, as if it's a vacation destination. But it's got to be, like, no more than, like, an hour or two riding because it's, like, a half a day's walk. Un- unclear. I never thought that they were in Paris because it was never explicitly stated. But now I think perhaps, maybe. Well, Yeah, it must be Paris. Either that or they live near some, like, Versailles-type situation. (laughs) Right. Anyway. Anyway, so he is really meh on his life and trying to avoid an arranged marriage with Spain, generally shirking his princely responsibilities. One day, he's, like, running away from his minders and he rides past basically stealing drew barrymore's father's horse she thinks he's a thief and throws apples at him and they have a heated interaction then shortly after they have like another run-in because she's gotten dressed up as a noblewoman in her mother's old clothes to rescue a servant who's been sold to cartier (laughs) to be like shipped off to the americas to pay angelica houston's debt Um, she also scolds him in noblewoman form and he is rather taken with her and tries to figure out her identity and she's like, boy, I did not want to attract anyone's attention. Whoops. And then they just like keep having run-ins all over the place because Da Vinci is visiting and the prince is apparently just hanging out with Da Vinci all over the countryside while Drew Barrymore is also living her wayward servant life all over the countryside. Um, basically they fall in love, but he doesn't know her real identity. And meanwhile, Angelica Houston is also trying to marry off her unpleasant daughter to him, uh, her hotter, less fun daughter. And she eventually figures out what's going on with Drew Barrymore because all of the courtiers are talking about this fictitious countess. Who Drew Barrymore has cleverly given her dead mother's name to. Yes, never thinking that her identity would continue and it would get back to her, but obviously it did. Anyway, so the king and the queen are trying to deal with their wayward son and they decide to have a ball and he's like, fine, you don't want to marry the Spanish princess. If you pick a girl in the next five days, you can marry someone else (laughs) because that's reasonable. A lot of pressure. And, you know, obviously he wants to marry Drew Barrymore and Drew Barrymore through like sort of a weird mishap kind of gets permission to go to the ball but then after angelica houston finds out about this contest nonsense she's like absolutely not and locks her in the cellar which by the way the cellar doesn't look like that unpleasant a place to be locked that's true but anywhere i guess is unpleasant if you're like trying to stop your stepmother's machinations True, true. But I was like, there's a lot of food in this cellar. It could be worse. Anyway, Da Vinci and her servant pals rescue her, and she manages to go to the ball all dressed up with rhinestones somehow. Yes, we were. I was like, who did her makeup? And Matt was like, Da Vinci, the painter. <laughs> 
And then we were like, but did he like stop at Michael's? How did she get these like face diamonds? Da Vinci. Okay. (laughs) He can also make diamonds. He's got a lot of talents. He has glitter on him. It's fine. Anyway, so (laughs) she finally manages to make it to the ball only to have the prince basically like throw her peasant life in her face when Angelica Houston reveals the truth. And she runs away and loses a shoe, as one does when one is running and somehow doesn't notice. Heartbroken and, like, his faith in romance lost, the prince decides to accept his life and marry the Spanish princess, while Drew Barrymore gets sold to some creep who's played by the guy from Rocky Horror. Uh, eventually, DeGray Scott realizes he's dumb and goes to find her, at which point she's also rescued herself because she happens to be an expert swordswoman. Having learned when she was eight and having retained that knowledge (laughs) in the 10 years since her father died. Yes, presumably not having held a weapon since, except for that one time when she and the prince were fighting gypsies, but she didn't do very well. Um, anyway, they reunite and get married off screen for some reason mainly so that this can then be revealed dramatically to the unfortunate stepmother and stepsister, who the king and queen want to ship off to the Americas for lying, but then Drew Barrymore is basically like, do unto them as they've done unto me, and they become very unpleasant servants. While convent. What? No, they get sent, don't they get sent to like a convent? Oh, maybe. I've always thought that they were just like in like the laundry downstairs. (laughs) No, they get shipped off to a convent where they are like forced to take orders and they're like dressed in habits in the laundry room. Oh, that does make sense. So meanwhile, Melanie Linsky, the sister who doesn't suck, presumably gets to live happily ever after with the guard she met at the ball. And the whole thing is framed by Drew Barrymore's I think, great-great-granddaughter telling the story to the Brothers Grimm post-French Revolution. Yes, because they've come out with their book of fairy tales, and she's like, I really liked it, except for your story about the Cinders girl. I like how they were just like, I, I, I truly have a lot of questions about what went on during the script writing process. They were like, let's just toss Da Vinci in here as like a fairy godmother situation. Who could possibly fulfill this role? I know, Leonardo Da Vinci. Yes, they really played it fast and loose with the historical fantasy genre. But it wasn't fantasy. I mean, it, it was just like, as I was watching it, I, I feel like I had the impression always that it was a historical fantasy, but there's no fantasy. It's just like a historical Cinderella telling or whatever. Oh my god, you're so right. Like, you think there's magic, but there's no magic. I guess that's the whole point of what the granddaughter is saying, but... Truly, I've seen this movie an uncountable number of times, and it's only just occurred to me that there is no fantasy element. Nope, not at all. It feels like there should be, but there isn't. Well, okay. That's a real seismic shift in my perception of Ever After. I I know. They are, however, gypsies, which is unfortunate. Yes, I was like, this has aged very, very poorly. Um, Okay, on the topic of history, so I think that the king and the prince are meant to be Francis I and Henry II. Okay. Which was indeed the early 16th century. However, there was only a four-year overlap between Francis's reign and da Vinci's life. Oh. (laughs) 
And I also think that when Francis reigned, his son was not that young. But this is just from a Wikipedia glance, and I may have misremembered numbers. Except I'm definitely right about the four-year overlap. I was like, this is really the tail end of da Vinci's life, I guess. I don't really think historical integrity was, like, high on the scriptwriter's list. No, no, it was not. I was like, boy, rock, paper, scissors is really old. (laughs) Um... Okay, this is probably related to the historical whatever, but why couldn't Angelica Houston just move if she didn't want to live in the countryside? I'm not sure. Like, I am not sure why she wasn't able to just sell the manor and and leave because i i mean i don't know what kind of like legal situation she was in because you know like she was his second wife but danielle i mean drew barrymore was his daughter so like who inherited the property well i guess because drew barrymore was a minor and also a girl like if he had a son that would be different Right, right, right. Oh, I was also under the impression or like just thinking about it that I wasn't sure that their farm like was like, that's why when you were like, oh, maybe he was a farmer. I was like, what? Because I don't think that was supposed to be like a farmable um, property, essentially, uh, when he was still alive, because his income was merchant. I assume they had all those gardens just to provide food for the household. And then as time went on and he died that they had to resort to selling vegetables from their farm in order to generate income because Angelica Houston was like running into the ground. Oh, you're probably right because it didn't seem like they had a lot of land and servants. Although maybe Angelica Houston has sold them all into indentured servitude. No, I mean, I assumed by that point, because we see in like the beginning of the film that he actually had a pretty large household, like at the point where, you know, it's 10 years later, I assume she, you know, she's obviously like sold them all one by one to cover her debts. I, I'm shocked, frankly, that they fetched a high enough price. Yes, at this time. For her to like keep the household running and her daughter in brooches, but. <laughs> um, But like, let's talk a little about Angelica Houston's background, because it seems like she she goes on like a little thing to Drew Barrymore about like my mother used to make me wash my face a bunch so that I would be successful in life and look at me a baroness and Marguerite will be queen. And so I guess it's unclear whether Angelica Houston was of noble blood, which she does say later, but I didn't realize until she said that like in the convent, but maybe she married up in her original marriage. Yeah, I mean, like, if she was a baroness and she had two children, by the time she married, she obviously had to have gotten that title from a baron. I guess I was just like, I don't know if she was noble to begin with, so maybe she didn't have money of her own. Maybe she had the baron's money, but then she spent it after his death. Unclear. And then had to marry August the Merchant. Yeah, I mean, like, who's to say? I mean, like, I got the impression that she married Drew Barrymore's father for love, but... I mean, there are a million scenarios that could have occurred, like the Baron could have had a son from another marriage who inherited, you know, which left her in dire straits. Like, you know, who's to say? Yeah, because I guess when she arrives, she seems like she'd be rich, but either she was rich and has immediately spent all this money because no more's coming in because she's a woman, or she was never rich to begin with. Yeah, I guess it's unclear about what her financial status is, but either way, I mean, it seems like Drew Barrymore's father, you know, is able to financially care for his new family. Um, until he 
unfortunately dies immediately. Like, just, like, drops dead, yeah. But he must have done well for himself to have been able to at least, his money could at least kind of keep the family going for, like, almost ten years later down the line. Yes, and attract a baroness in the first place. Yeah. Um... I was remembering that I used to cry at this movie. There were, like, three points that made me extremely upset. The first one being Dad's death. Mm-hmm. The second one being when her stepsister burns the book. Oh, yeah, that's very sad. The last book that he left her. And the third time being that confrontation she has with Angelica Houston where she's basically like, I just wanted you to be my mom. Yeah. It's very emotional. It is actually, like... I feel like the movie actually does a pretty good job of like giving you the sort of fairy tale romance element, but also giving Drew Barrymore and Angelica Houston's relationship some depth. Um, so I actually, you know, I enjoy it. Although I am so interested in Angelica Houston's deal with Drew Barrymore's dad. Like, I am like, what's going on? She seems like she loved him. Um, I would like to have seen like more of that color her issues like later on, because it's true that we just assume that, you know, because when he's dying, he says, I love you to Drew Barrymore, not Angelica Houston, that she like holds this kind of against a child. But like, I I kind of wish that had come back later. Yeah, the movie does a good job of making of suggesting that's where that comes from, but also, like, she's eight. Yeah. Like, you would think that over the years they they might have addressed this. Yeah, well, Angelica Houston doesn't seem like she's doing any, like, you know... Soul-searching. She's just immediately like, well, dad's dead. To the cellar you go. Yeah. Well, I think maybe perhaps that, like, resentment built up over time. But really, the way she talks about the farm is like, I never wanted to live so far out in the country. And you're like... Okay, but Paris seems to be but a stone's throw away. Yeah, there's literally a bunch of scenes where they spent, where she and Marguerite go and like take the carriage in to attend church with the royals. I mean, it does seem like it's like a, a little bit of a journey back home, like because they're gone like all day. But like, that's very doable. I think we might also be falling prey to our own perception of distance, whereas Europe, as we have said before, is the size of a postage stamp. <laughs> But still, like, back in this time when they all had carriages and horses, like, travel was slow. Yes, it did take a while to get places. Um, I don't love the prince's face. I was gonna say, there are two aspects to this. One is, I was never attracted to him. It was always about her for me. And this, frankly, isn't even her most attractive movie. But the prince is so whatever to me. Also, I quasi forgot they were probably supposed to be teenagers because they both fully look like adults. Oh, yeah. I forget this all the time. Alex was saying that the prince looks like he is simultaneously both 22 and 44. Correct. Like, you're just like, how do you look like a a grown man, but also a child? Like... But the other thing about The Prince is that I don't think as a teenager or in my very early 20s, I felt this way. But rewatching, I was like, he's kind of lame. Yeah, I know. He really sucks. She really has to work on him. I know. I was like, this like manic pixie peasant girl situation is less palatable to me now than it was a decade ago. Yeah, because she has to like, he's like, I don't care about anything. I don't want to be king. He's just like full of apathy. And she's like, you can do so many things. And then he's like, I want to open a university. Yeah, it's like that classic Aida thing of being like, what are you complaining about? You're a literal prince. Yeah. And honestly, he turns it around very quickly. 
I was like, wow, she's really inspired you in the space of like two days. Yeah, he's like, I've never met anyone like you before. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe you just haven't talked to any other women. Although admittedly, if the women around him are in the Marguerite mold, who could blame him? That's okay. Yeah, that's fair. Oh, can we address something? So I feel like Melanie Linsky's character is constantly being portrayed as like being fat. Where like, if you watch the film, you're like, (laughs) Melanie Linsky is a slender lady. (laughs) Like, what is happening? If anything, she's the same size as Drew Barrymore. I know. I was like, I don't understand. Like, I feel like, so before rewatching, right, if you had asked me, I, I think I would have been like, oh, I had the impression that one of the stepsisters was supposed to be chubbier. And that was like the butt of a lot of like fat phobic jokes. But upon rewatching, it was worse because <laughs> she was like, not by any stretch of the imagination, like overweight at all, like not even chubby. I think she's just rounder in the face than the other sister. It's just baby fat. It's Melody Linsky. She's adorable. She's wonderful. I was basically like, I forgot that there are two tremendous unsung heroes of this movie. One being Melanie Linsky and the other being Drew Barrymore's friend Gustav. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about Gustav. Melanie Linsky is so darling and I remembered liking her, but with every subsequent scene in this rewatch, I was like... Jacqueline is my favorite character. (laughs) But to be fair about the weight thing, I feel like if Drew Barrymore had been Angelica Houston's child, she would also have fat shamed her all the time. So in that sense, maybe Drew Barrymore has dodged a bullet. Maybe, but the movie seems to agree with Angelica Houston that Melly Linsky is a bit heavy, but like, you know, like she's the nice one. I was just confused. I was like, what is happening? And also she... Because her mother keeps being like, oh, you're just here for the food, blah, 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 stop eating, Jacqueline, you're a cow. And then she's at the ball, she meets this guard who seems to be also hanging out at the snack table. Maybe she just has a wonderful metabolism. Maybe. (laughs) She clearly does if she's, you know, eating as much as we're led to believe and looks like that. But you know what? I'm not certain of this, but if this was like peak corset times maybe i don't know i just didn't know why we were fat shaming this woman who looks like she weighed like 130 pounds i don't know either but that happens all the time in movies where they're all like oh so and so eats all the time and you're like surely not doesn't seem likely but like usually when we're making all these like horrible fat phobic jokes like the actress in question is usually (laughs) at least you could like squint and be like i guess she could be considered like heavier whereas (laughs) melly linsky i was like i i I just don't know i just don't know who's looking at melly linsky was like let's cast her as the fat one (sighs) it really made me want to watch sweet home alabama where she plays the wonderful hometown friend yeah, I was thinking about that. We actually just rewatched um, her first film, Beautiful Creatures, like a couple months ago, because we, we were just like, I'm I'm in the mood to watch a deranged Peter Jackson film about, you know, Kate Winslet and Melanie Linsky and their pseudo, like, homosexual, like, French obsession where they murder Melanie Linsky's mom. I was going to say, an artifact of my Kate Winslet face. Yeah. Um, I'd like to get back to Henry, but first let me just briefly talk about Gustav. And I was like, I don't know why, as a kid, I wasn't like, I shipped this. Because you'd think I could if he appeared in the movie more. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing with Gustav, Drew Barrymore's childhood friend, is that he's, like, 
they make a point of having him appear in the flashback in, in like the early scenes when she's eight and like their friends or whatever. And I was like, oh, I feel like in like all other scripts, like in like another situation, like that would be the actual love story, right? Like the two of them, she would realize that like what she wanted wasn't really the prince, but the prince was there in front of her all along. It was her friend. But Gustav fortunately grows up to be like, you know, they obviously cast someone like Weedy. So... <laughs> He couldn't possibly be considered an actual love interest. Yes, and also he's a painter. So in the modern day, maybe he'd be gay. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. I hadn't considered that. But but I don't think he is because he is like, no one's going to be looking at your feet or whatever. So he's checking but her he's, out. But he's a very supportive friend. He's a very, very supportive friend. And I must say, the casting department did an incredible job of getting a little kid and an adult who looked similar. Oh, yes, I think so, too. Um, They kind of did a good job with the other little kids as well. But Gustav in particular, it's like 100% that boy grew up to be this man. I know. It's like a 13 going on 30 casting. Well done. Well done, casting department. But to return to the prince, he really sucks for like the first half of the film. Yep. It's not... I mean, some of it is how he treats her, but that's kind of to be expected given the dynamic. But he's really just so like, I care about nothing. I have nothing. My life is such a trap. And you're like, dude, you have everything. Apparently, you can just say the word and build a university. Yeah. And he's also just like, I'm just going to like escape my life and go like backpacking across the continent, which is essentially (laughs) what he wants to do. He's like, all right, dude. All right. I do think... However, that they do a good job of giving them enough time to bond, especially given the shortened timeline. I was like, I forgot that it was such a short space of time because they have many run-ins and they spend time together and you have that feeling of time passing as they talk and talk and talk. Yeah, it's actually nice for a film and so many movies that we watch, like the films don't do a good job of that. Like they don't establish the characters getting to know each other and actually falling for each other. Whereas in this one, you're like, okay, I not only buy the accelerated timeline because, you know, 16th century, but I also buy that they actually got to know each other in a way where they wanted to be together. Yeah. And I have to say, despite his garbage personality early on, I think he does a nice job with the confession at the end. Like, you both kind of understand his, frankly, quite shitty turn at the ball. And when she calls him on it later, he's basically like, yes, you are absolutely correct that I fully betrayed you the second I was given the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) I trust that she will remind him of this many, many times during their marriage. Yes, I hope so. Speaking of their marriage, how did they... One, get married in secret, and B, get married in secret so secretly that the Baroness, who seems obsessed with court goings-on, had no idea. I don't know. Also, you said one and B, so I enjoyed that. Oh. Um, so maybe they took advantage of the fact that she was in her country house because she's like, let's give him a few days to steward of her. But it really seems like the prince went, fetched Drew Barrymore. They got married like on the road in like a Las Vegas type like marriage <laughs> chapel with Elvis. And then like, and then the next day we're like, oh, Angelica Houston and your daughters, why don't you come to court? But the thing is when she enters like crowned and everything and all the people bow, it's like the rest of the court obviously knows that she's now the princess. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they sent a secret note around to all the like <laughs> the fancy noble homes in 
the city. And Angelica Houston, they were like, now nah, we're just gonna just, so you know, FYI, we're staging this so we can really exact revenge. Yeah, I picture it like a mean surprise party. <laughs> like they gather the rest of the courtiers. And they're like, oh, shh, sh- don't ruin the surprise. Yeah, and this is how it's gonna go. Like we're gonna say these things and then she's gonna come in and you're all gonna bow. But also Melanie Linsky seems to be in on the joke. Is she? I don't know if she knows for sure they've gotten married, but she's there when the prince comes looking for her. Yes, yes. Yeah, and he's like, tell no one, and she and the guard, like, exchange a look. So I kind of feel like if she's in correspondence with her new lover, the the horse guard. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. What about that small man who is Angelica Houston's, like, informant, but also there's, like, some sort of weird sexual thing between the two of them? Yeah, I don't know. Also, did Gustav literally kill him when he dropped the pot on his head? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I think it's meant to just knock him out, but I'm like, that's a heavy pot from quite a height. Maybe Gustav did commit murder. Well, now his best friend is the queen, so she can, you know, get him off, so... Yes, yes. Well, he really is an even more supportive friend than I thought, if that's the case. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, um, oh, boy. I'd like to raise a question, which is, it's France. So presumably, when they're speaking English, they're all speaking French? Yes. And Da Vinci must also be speaking French. I assume so. And then we briefly see the Spanish princess and her entourage, and she's speaking Spanish. Yeah. So I, I just need to bring up this side thing, which is literally the Spanish prince is walking up the aisle sobbing, right? Like gasping for breath as she's walked up to the altar to marry the prince. And like literally they're on the altar where he's like, let's call it off. Like we don't, neither of us want to get married. It turns out that she is in love with some other guy who is maybe the ugliest man they could have chosen for this role. Like you would have thought that this woman, I mean like not that she was like an extreme beauty on her own, but like this man was like balding with like tufts of hair sticking up i was very confused i was like could they not have picked a hot guy like i I don't know well he also seems to be old that's what really baffles me like the princess is young enough and attractive enough that she would make a good match for degray scott a man of uncertain age and also princesses are generally younger but truly like then you see the spanish king and queen fighting and i was literally kind of like did she fall in love with her uncle is that why they're so upset like what happened oh yeah he is like a much older like balding man like is he a bodyguard is he an advisor what's that story ever after two no he is like too like skinny in his frame to be a bodyguard of any any kind I feel like maybe he was her tutor and Gross. they had an illicit affair. Oh, like an old tutor. Yeah. Oh. I know. Gross. Repulsive. But maybe when you're the Spanish princess, you just don't have a lot to choose from because you're, you know, you're being like kept in your like. She's too like cloistered. Day. Yeah. Huh. You only see your ladies in waiting. I feel like if you're anywhere besides zero on the Kinsey scale, that's like a better option than this tutor though. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I'm just saying. Anyway, I have a really important question. Do you think Da Vinci's boat shoes are real? Oh, I don't know. So in the movie, there's like a whole, one of the run-ins that Drew Barrymore has with the prince is she's like having a swim in the river near her place, just like relaxing. And Da Vinci is checking out his latest invention, which are these boat shoes that walk on water. And he literally like walks to the middle of the river and she's just like floating there and they scream and he falls in. And we were kind of like, oh, I bet these don't work well. And then we were like, JK, they work perfectly. 
I, but yes, I, I too want to know. Like, can you in fact walk on water if you have big enough clogs? <laughs> Are the Dutch hiding something from us that they've known all along? Well, to be fair, their country is slowly being submerged, so maybe. Oh, so I had a question about, so at the end of the film, she gets sold, Ray, you've, you've mentioned, um, to cover Angelica Houston's debts. And she gets taken. And the thing is, is that this creepy man has like shown up before in the film being like menacing or whatever and basically telling Drew Barrymore that he would like to have her marry her or something like that. Yes, this low rent Johnny Depp. Yes. And at the end, she's just like a servant in his fortress or whatever. And I was like, oh, I thought his intentions were like weird and sexual and not just like making her like carry his swords around. Oh, they are weird and sexual, but I think that he's thus far been unable to break her like a horse. There's a lot of horse imagery in this movie for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) And he basically is like, I won't take these manacles off because you'll just run away. And so I think that she's tried to run away several times, whereas if she were like docile, they would have already probably slept together. I think his, I'm pretty sure his intent is to marry her. Oh, I because he just seems like the kind of guy who just wasn't going to ask for permission and just go ahead. So I was a little surprised. Maybe she's too feisty because she's secretly an expert swordswoman. Maybe. With a good throwing arm. Yeah, that clearly didn't come up during the gypsy scene, but okay. (laughs) I know. We were like, wait, but we saw you hold a sword like really unsuccessfully an hour ago. But I think that maybe she just didn't get a chance to get any strikes in. Also, there were a lot of gypsies, whereas there's only one. um, I think his name's literally Le Pew. Yeah, I feel like in this in these types of films, like the gypsies, I'm putting air quotes, the gypsies always like show up at some point. I thought they were just brigands. Yeah, they always like show up at some point. Until they said gypsies. And then I was like, oh no. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, must you? They always turn up. And it, it's always like, we throw a great party, and I'm like, is this the only thing we know about them? Is this the only thing? Yes. They are the itinerant frat people. Yeah, but what I was shocked is that, you know, usually there's like an older woman who's like wearing a kerchief who will tell your fortune. I was just gonna say they really missed an opportunity. I have to say later the prince is like, we're like, oh, this is really awkward. But there seems to be very little actual discrimination because apparently everyone was just cool with the prince inviting the gypsies to the ball. Oh, yeah. He's like, look, I invited them. And you're like, really? Your your courtiers are just like mingling with the gypsies and they're cool with it? Doubtful. Yeah. I feel like they would be super racist. Given the way you are about to react to your beloved being a peasant, it seems weird that you invited the gypsies. Anyway, speaking of horse imagery, one of my favorite lines is when the hot daughter gets to dress as a peacock and Melanie Linsky has to be a horse. Oh, yeah, for the mask. Yeah. Yes. And it works out because she meets that guard also dressed as a horse. But Angelica Houston goes like, the horse is one of God's noblest creatures. I did like that. Like, Angelica Houston had a couple of zingers. Yeah, she has some wonderful jokes. Like, I love when that scene where she is saying to the prince, he's, like, quasi-interested in Drew Barrymore, like, feisty servant girl. And she's like, she is mute. And he's like, well, she spoke quite forcefully. And she's like, oh, it it comes and goes. (laughs) Yeah, I think all my favorite lines were probably said by Angelica Houston. Like, there was another one where she talks about how, like, because, like, I think, like, Marguerite said something about dying or something like that. It's very early on. And then... Angelica Houston is like, well, even then, I'm sure God negotiates. (laughs) 
I think my historical favorite line is when the king is yelling at Henry and he goes like, I will simply deny you the crown and live forever. And I also like when the prince's mom is going like, choose wisely, divorce is only something they do in England. (laughs) Um, Although now I feel like I should check and be like, had that even happened yet? I don't know. Because they really play it fast and loose with the dates in this movie. So if it was like what, like early... Yeah, let's say it was between 1515 and 1519 based on when Leonardo da Vinci died and when Francis took the throne. Okay. No, Henry did not show up until uh, he was king from 1509. Well, okay, until 1547. Okay, yeah, like check when he married Anne Boleyn. Okay, let's see. So... Yeah, it wasn't until the 1530s that he, like, actually manages to marry Elizabeth. I mean, Anne. Anne. (laughs) Um, Okay. So this is sometime in the mid-1500s where they have a fictional king named Francis in France. And Leonardo da Vinci lived longer. Yep. Good to know. Also, I was like, wow, maybe I don't know enough history because they were like, blah, blah, blah in the war. And I was like, I got to look up which war this is. I don't remember this war. Again, historical integrity, not high on their list. So they fudged some things. And frankly, I'm surprised that Henry was so close to this time, Henry VIII. God, I just saw that in my notes, it also says, how did that Spanish guy score the princess? (laughs) LOL, Uh, the Spanish royals. Yeah. So what were some of your favorite scenes? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I seem to have only written down favorite lines. Uh, What happens? I don't know. I I think some of the best scenes I don't think of as favorite scenes because they're very upsetting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because it's like the the better acted stuff. Yeah. Um, I do think they do a decent job near the end. I think they do most of the scenes between her and the prince in the middle when he's like a little less apathetic are nice. Yeah. Uh, She's reasonably funny throughout. I think uh, Leonardo da Vinci also has some great funny stuff, although his existence is bizarre. I do enjoy when he pulls the hinges out of the cellar and he goes like, yes, I shall go down in history as the man who opened a door. I like some of the stuff with them together. You know, it's nice, like, uh, their night away from the, from their night, like, with the gypsies, I guess. Like, like after that confrontation is, like, kind of nice when they're playing rock, paper, scissors. Like, it's just, like, some of the bonding stuff between the two of them is good. Oh, she is, Drew Barrymore is particularly funny in the scene from the next morning where she's like hungover and like hasn't gotten enough sleep and like Angelica Houston and Melanie Linsky and I forget, Marguerite, uh, they're like, they're there to like demand their breakfast. Oh, and Melanie Linsky gets sent off to make the eggs and she's super, she's like, I knew it. Yeah. Um, Drew Barrymore has a couple of funny lines there. Um... I do appreciate Angelica Houston's comeuppance at the end. I like when they're at the court and the queen is like, unless someone here will speak for you. And it's before Drew Barrymore enters and Angelica Houston just goes, there seem to be quite a few people out of town. She's really spectacular in this movie. Yeah, no, she's great. I mean, Angelica Houston's always great. I have to say we found a surprising amount to say about this movie, considering that when I finished watching, I was like, I have nothing to say, except I have a lot of stuff to look up. I know. 
I'm shocked actually that we've talked for this long, but we both really like Ever After. So, but usually when we like a movie, like it's no guarantee that we have anything to say about it. We're just like, oh, we liked it. But we're just here wondering, like, are water shoes real? <laughs> These are the questions you listen to this podcast for. Um, should we even bother doing a POC? Ca- I mean, there's no one. <laughs> I don't think there was a single person of color in this movie. Not a si- Every single person in this film is white. It's interesting because I guess the Spanish royals were intended to be a little browner, but it's Spain. Not really, though. They're just like olive. Yeah, they're, they're like olive white people. They have darker hair. It's like an R Greeks situation. Yeah. So, no, unlike the other Cinderella adaptation, there are no people of color in this one. Oh, now I want to rewatch that movie. Um, and what would you score it? Huh. It's interesting because I don't think of it as a rom-com, but I guess it is both romantic and funny. Which is saying, I mean, like, that maybe ranks it higher as a rom-com than a lot of other films we have watched that were neither romantic nor funny. Yeah, uh, maybe like an eight? I don't know. You lose points for The Prince, but then you gain points for Angelica Houston. I mean, admittedly, he's not horrible. We've seen much, much worse. I think this movie holds up as, like, a pretty enjoyable, like, film. Yeah, I think Matt had seen it before and remembered it as being kind of slow. And I was like, oh, I kind of see why you felt that way. But uh, there's definitely been movies that came out in the 90s and 2000s that we've watched and been like, boy, did this not age well. But this was not one of those times. You know, I think partially because they couldn't be that racist, well, with the exception of the gypsy stuff, um, because there were literally no brown people in this entire world. Well, we've said that before. Like, sometimes it's better that there's no people of color. Yeah, because then they can't do anything that you're like, oh, no, this is terrible. I can never watch this film again. Which is not how we hope for things to be, but is a sad reality. Sometimes you're like, people of color don't deserve to be in this horrible movie. We got enough problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I would agree with you. I would say, like, eight horse references out of ten. <laughs> eight out of ten, do those water shoes work? Eight out of ten racist gypsy showdowns. Eight out of ten inexplicable how that Spanish guy scored the princess. Yep, yep, yep. We've really veered away from nouns here, but it's fine. (laughs) Anyway, so thanks for joining us today. We thoroughly enjoyed discussing Ever After. Um, Hope you'll join us again next month. We don't know what our movie is going to be yet, but we'll let you all know where we'll surprise you with a two-day submit suggestions actually we're kind of scraping the yeah we're kind of running out i mean but i we can always go back to our original list and see uh but there's so many movies i would never want to witness again ever again if anyone knows of movies that star people of color that don't make you want to claw your own eyeballs out and eat them we would love to watch some of those yes All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon. Please follow us on our social media, which is listed in the credits. Uh, And bye. Thank you to Hannah Oatman, who composed our theme music, and Alexandra Oatman, who painted our logo art. You can follow Alexandra on Twitter at at Alexandra. Special thanks to Quincy Surasmith for advising us on the art of the podcast. Subscribe to his wonderful podcast, Asian Americana, at wherever you get your podcasts. Want more Romcomathon? You can read past reviews at romcomathon2016.tumblr.com and follow us at Romcomathon2016 on Facebook and Twitter and Romcomathon on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. Please subscribe and rate Romcomathon on iTunes. Thank you.